Section 19 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Beauty and the Beast by Madame de Villeneuve. Translated by James Blanche. Part 1 in a country very far from this is to be seen a great city wherein trade flourishes abundantly it numbered amongst its citizens a merchant who succeeded in all his speculations and upon whom fortune responding to his wishes had always showered her fairest favours but if he had immense wealth he had also a great many children his family consisting of six boys and six girls. None of them were settled in life. The boys were too young to think of it, the girls too proud of their fortunes, upon which they had every reason to count, could not easily determine upon the choice they should make. Their vanity was flattered by the attentions of the handsomest young gentleman. But a reverse of fortune, which they did not at all expect, came to trouble their felicity their house took fire the splendid furniture with which it was filled the account books the notes gold silver and all the valuable stores which formed the merchant's principal wealth were enveloped in this fatal conflagration which was so violent that very few of the things could be saved this first misfortune was but the forerunner of others the father with whom hitherto everything had prospered, lost at the same time, either by shipwreck or by pirates, all the ships he had at sea. His correspondence made him a bankrupt. His foreign agents were treacherous. In short, from the greatest opulence, he suddenly fell into the most abject poverty. He had nothing left but a small country house, situated in a lonely place, more than a hundred leagues from the city in which he usually resided impelled to seek a place of refuge from noise and tumult he took his family to this retired spot who were in despair at such a revolution the daughters of this unfortunate merchant were especially horrified at the prospect of the life they should have to lead in this dull solitude for some time they flattered themselves that when their father's intention became known, their lovers, who had hitherto sued in vain, would be only too happy to find they were inclined to listen to them. They imagined that the many admirers of each would be all striving to obtain the preference. They thought if they wished only for a husband, they would obtain one. But they did not remain very long in such a delightful illusion they had lost their greatest attractions when like a flash of lightning their father's splendid fortune had disappeared and their time for choosing had departed with it their crowd of admirers vanished at the moment of their downfall their beauty was not sufficiently powerful to retain one of them their friends were not more generous than their lovers from the hour they became poor every one without exception ceased to know them some were even cruel enough to impute their misfortunes to their own acts 
Those whom the father had most obliged were his most vehement calumniators. They reported that all his calamities were brought on by his own bad conduct, his prodigality and the foolish extravagance of himself and his children. This wretched family, therefore, could not do better than depart from a city wherein everybody took a pleasure in insulting them in their misfortunes. Having no resource whatever, they shut themselves up in their country house, situated in the middle of an almost impenetrable forest, and which might well be considered the saddest abode in the world. What misery they had to endure in this frightful solitude! They were forced to do the hardest work, not being able to have any one to wait upon them. This unfortunate merchant's sons were compelled to divide the servants' duties amongst them, as well as to exert themselves in every way that people must do who have to earn their livelihood in the country. The daughters, on their part, had sufficient employment. Like the poor peasant girls, they found themselves obliged to employ their delicate hands in all the labors of a rural life, wearing nothing but woolen dresses, having nothing to gratify their vanity, existing upon what the land could give them, limited to common necessaries, but still retaining a refined and dainty taste. These girls incessantly regretted the city and its attractions. Their recollection even of their younger days passed so rapidly in a round of mirth and pleasure was their greatest tournament. The youngest girl, however, displayed greater perseverance and firmness in their common misfortune. She bore her lot cheerfully, and with a strength of mind much beyond her years, not but what at first she was truly melancholy. Alas, who would not have felt such misfortunes? But after deploring her father's ruin, could she do better than resume her former gaiety? make up her mind to the position she was placed in, and forget a world which she and her family had found so ungrateful, and the friendship of which she was so fully persuaded was not to be relied upon in the time of adversity. Anxious to console herself and her brothers by her amiable disposition and sprightliness, there was nothing she did not do to amuse them. The merchant had spared no cost in her education, nor in that of her sisters. At this sad period she derived all the advantage from it she desired, as she could play exceedingly well upon various instruments and sing to them charmingly. She asked her sisters to follow her example, but her cheerfulness and patience only made them more miserable. These girls, who were so inconsolable in their ill fortune, thought their youngest sister showed a poor and mean spirit, and even silliness, to be so merry in the state it had pleased Providence to reduce them to. How happy she is, said the eldest. She was intended for such coarse occupations, with such low notions. What would she have done in the world? Such remarks were unjust young person was much more fitted to shine in society than either of them. She was a perfectly beautiful young creature. Her good temper rendered her adorable. A generous and tender heart was visible in all her words and actions. 
quite as much alive to the reverses that had just overwhelmed her family as either of her sisters. By a strength of mind which is not common in her sex, she concealed it, her sorrow and rose superior to her misfortunes. So much firmness was considered to be insensibility, but one can easily appeal from a judgment pronounced by jealousy. Every intelligent person who saw her in her true light was eager to give her the preference over her sisters. In the midst of her greatest splendor, although distinguished by her merit, she was so handsome that she was called the beauty. Known by this name only, what more was required to increase the jealousy and hatred of her sisters? Her charms and the general esteem in which she was held might have induced her to hope for a much more advantageous establishment than her sisters. But feeling only for her father's misfortunes, far from retarding his departure from a city in which she had enjoyed so much pleasure, she did all she could to expedite it. This young girl was as contented in their solitude as she had been in the midst of the world. To amuse herself in her hours of relaxation, she would dress her hair with flowers, and like the shepherdesses of former times, forgetting in a rural life all that had most gratified her in the height of opulence, every day brought to her some new innocent pleasure. Two years had already passed, and the family began to be accustomed to a country life, when a hope of returning prosperity arrived to discompose their tranquillity. The father received news that one of his vessels, that he thought was lost, had safely arrived in port, richly laden. His informants added, they feared the factors would take advantage of his absence and sell the cargo at a low price, and by this fraud make a great profit at his expense. He imparted these tidings to his children, who did not doubt for an instant but that they should soon be enabled to return from exile. The girls, much more impatient than the boys, thinking it was unnecessary to wait for more certain proof, were anxious to set out instantly and to leave everything behind them. But the father, who was more prudent, begged them to moderate their delight. However important he was to his family, at a time when the labors of the field could not be interrupted without great loss, he determined to leave his sons to get in the harvest, and that he would set out upon this long journey. His daughters, with the exception of the youngest, expected they would soon be restored to their former opulence. They fancied that, even if their father's property would not be considerable enough, to settle them in their great metropolis, their native place, he would at least have sufficient for them to live in a less expensive city. They trusted they should find good society there, attract admirers, and profit by the first offer that might be made to them. Scarcely remembering the troubles they had undergone for the last two years, believing themselves to be already, as by a miracle, removed from poverty into the lap of plenty, they ventured, for retirement had not cured them of the taste for luxury and display. To overwhelm their father with foolish commissions, they requested him to make purchases of jewelry, attire, and headdresses. Each endeavored to outvie the other in her demands, 
so that the sum total of their father's supposed fortune would not have been sufficient to satisfy them. Beauty, who was not the slave of ambition, and who always acted with prudence, saw directly that if he executed her sister's commissions, it would be useless for her to ask for anything. But the father, astonished at her silence, said, interrupting his insatiable daughters, Well, Beauty, dost thou not desire anything? What shall I bring thee? What dost thou wish for? Speak freely. My dear papa, replied the amiable girl, embracing him affectionately, I wish for one thing more precious than all the ornaments my sister have asked you for. I have limited my desires to it, and shall be only too happy if they can be fulfilled. It is the gratification of seeing you return in perfect health. This answer was so unmistakably disinterested that it covered the others with shame and confusion. They were so angry that one of them, answering for the rest, said with bitterness, this child gives herself great airs, and fancies that she will distinguish herself by these affected heroics. Surely nothing can be more ridiculous. But the father, touched by her expressions, could not help showing his delight at them, appreciating, too, the feeling which induced her to ask nothing for herself. He begged she would choose something, and to allay the ill-will that his other daughters had towards her. He observed to her that such indifference to dress was not natural at her age, that there was a time for everything. Very well, my dear father, said she, since you desire me to make some request, I beg you will bring me a rose. I love that flower passionately, and since I have lived in this desert, I have not had the pleasure of seeing one. This was to obey her father and at the same time to avoid putting him to any expense for her. At length the day arrived that this good old man was compelled to leave his family. He travelled as fast as he could to the great city to which the prospect of a new fortune recalled him, but he did not meet with the benefits he had hoped for. His vessel had certainly arrived, but his partners, believing him to be dead, had taken possession of it, and all the cargo had been disposed of. Thus, instead of entering into the full and peaceable possession of that which belonged to him, he was compelled to encounter all sorts of chicanery in the pursuit of his rights. He overcame them, but after more than six months of trouble and expense, he was not any richer than he was before. His debtors had become insolvent and he could hardly defray his own costs. Thus terminated this dream of riches. To add to his disagreeables, he was obliged on the score of economy to start on his homeward journey at the most inconvenient time, and in the most frightful weather. Exposed on the road to the piercing blast, he thought he should die with fatigue, but when he found himself within a few miles of his house, which he did not reckon upon leaving for such false hopes, and which beauty had shown her sense in mistrusting. His strength returned to him. It would be some hours before he could cross the forest. It was late, but he wished to continue his journey. He was benighted, suffering from intense cold, buried, one might say, 
in the snow with his horse, not knowing which way to bend his steps. He thought his last hour had come, no hut in his road, although the forest was filled with them. A tree, hollowed by age, was the best shelter he could find, and only too happy was he to hide himself in it. This tree, protecting him from the cold, was the means of saving his life, and the horse a little distance from his master, perceiving another hollow tree, was led by instinct to take shelter in that. The night in such a situation appeared to him to be never-ending. Furthermore, he was vanished, frightened at the roaring of the wild beasts that were constantly passing by him. Could he be at peace for an instant? His trouble and anxiety did not end with the night. He had no sooner the pleasure of seeing daylight than his distress was greater. The ground appeared so extraordinarily covered with snow. No road could he find. No track was to be seen. It was only after great fatigue and frequent falls that he succeeded in discovering something like a path upon which he could keep his footing. Proceeding without knowing in which direction, chance led him into the avenue of a beautiful castle, which the snow seemed to have respected. It consisted of four rows of orange trees, laden with flowers and fruit. Statues were seen here and there, regardless of order or symmetry, somewhere in the middle of the road, others among the trees, all after the strangest fashion. They were of the size of life, and had the color of human beings in different attitudes and in various dresses, the greatest number representing warriors. Arriving at the first courtyard, he perceived a great many more statues. He was suffering so much from cold that he could not stop to examine them. An agate staircase with balusters of chased gold first presented itself to his sight. He passed through several magnificently furnished rooms. A gentle warmth which he breathed in them renovated him. He needed food, but to whom could he apply? This large and magnificent edifice appeared to be inhabited only by statues. A profound silence reigned throughout it. Nevertheless, it had not the air of an old palace that had been deserted. The halls, the rooms, the galleries were all open. No living thing appeared to be in this charming place. Weary of wandering over this vast dwelling, he stopped in a saloon, wherein was a large fire, presuming that it was prepared for someone who would not be long in appearing. He drew near the fireplace to warm himself, but no one came. Seated on a sofa near the fire, a sweet sleep closed his eyelid and left him no longer in a condition to observe the entrance of anyone. Fatigue induced him to sleep. Hunger awoke him. He had been suffering from it for the last twenty-four hours. The exercise that he had taken ever since he had been in this palace increased his appetite. When he awoke and opened his eyes, he was astonished to see a table elegantly laid, a light repast would not have satisfied him, but the viands, magnificently dressed, invited him to eat of everything. His first care was to utter in a loud voice his thanks 
to those from whom he had received so much kindness, and he then resolved to wait quietly till it pleased his host to make himself known to him. As fatigue caused him to sleep before his repast, so did the food produce the same effect, and his repose was longer and more powerful. In fact, this second time he slept for at least four hours. Upon awaking in the place of the first table, he saw another porphyry, upon which some kind hand had set out a collation consisting of cakes, preserved fruits, and liqueurs. This was likewise for his use. Profiting, therefore, by the kindness shown him, he partook of everything that suited his appetite, his taste, and his fancy. Finding at length no one to speak to or to inform him whether this palace was inhabited by a man or by a god, fear began to take possession of him, for he was naturally timid. He resolved, therefore, to repass through all the apartments and overwhelm them with thanks the genius to whom he was indebted for so much kindness, and in the most respectful manner solicit him to appear. All his attentions were useless. No appearance of servants, no result by which he could ascertain that the palace was inhabited. Thinking seriously of what he should do, he began to fancy for what reason he could not imagine that some good spirit had made this mansion a present to him, with all the riches that it contained. This idea seemed like an inspiration, and without further delay, making a new inspection of it. He took possession of all the treasures he could find. More than this, he settled in his own mind what share of it he should allow to each of his children and selected the apartments which would particularly suit them, enjoying the delight beforehand which his journey would afford them. He entered the garden where, in spite of the severity of the winter, the rarest flowers were exhaling the most delicious perfume in the mildest and purest air, birds of all kinds blending their songs with the confused noise of the waters made an agreeable harmony. The old man in ecstasies at such wonders said to himself, My daughters will not, I think, find it very difficult to accustom themselves to this delicious abode. I cannot believe that they will regret or that they will prefer the city to this mansion. Let me set out directly, cried he in a transport of joy rather uncommon for him. I shall increase my happiness in witnessing theirs. I will take possession at once. Upon entering this charming castle, he had taken care, notwithstanding he was nearly perished, to unbridle his horse and let him wind his way to a stable, which he had observed in the forecourt. An alley ornamented by palisades, formed by rose bushes in full bloom, led to it. He had never seen such lovely roses. Their perfume reminded him that he had made promise to give beauty a rose. He picked one, and was about to gather enough to make a half a dozen bouquets, when a most frightful noise made him turn round. He was terribly alarmed upon perceiving, at his side, a horrible beast, which, with an air of fury, laid upon his neck 
a kind of truck resembling an elephant's, and said with a terrific voice, Who gave thee permission to gather my roses? It is not enough that I kindly allow thee to remain in my palace. And instead of feeling grateful, rash man, I find thee stealing my flowers. Thy insolence shall not remain unpunished. The good man, already too much overpowered by the unexpected appearance of this monster, thought he should die of fright at these words, and quickly throwing away the fatal rose. Oh, my lord, said he, protesting himself before him, have mercy on me. I am not ungrateful, penetrated by all your kindness. I did not imagine that so slight a liberty could possibly have offended you. The monster very angrily replied hold thy tongue thou foolish joker i care not for thy flattery nor for the titles thou bestowest on me i'm not my lord i'm the beast and thou shalt not escape the death thou deservest the merchant dismayed at so cruel a sentence and thinking that submission was the only means to preserve his life said in a truly affecting manner that the rose he had dared to take was for one of his daughters called beauty then whether he hoped to escape from death or to induce his enemy to feel for him he related to him all his misfortunes he told him the object of his journey and did not omit to dwell on the little present he was bound to give beauty adding that was the only thing she had asked for while the riches of a king would hardly have sufficed to satisfy the wishes of his other daughters. And so came to the opportunity which had offered itself to satisfy the modest desire of beauty, and his belief that he could have done so without any unpleasant consequences, asking pardon, moreover, for his involuntary fault. The beast considered for a moment, then speaking in a milder tone, he said to him, I will pardon thee, but upon condition that thou wilt give me one of thy daughters. I require someone to repair this fault. Just heaven, replied the merchant. How can I keep my word? Could I be so inhuman as to save my own life at the expense of one of my children's? Under what pretext could I bring her here? There must be no pretext interrupted the beast i expect that whichever daughter you bring here she will come willingly or i will not have either of them go see if there be not one amongst them sufficiently courageous and loving thee enough to sacrifice herself to save thy life thou appearest to be an honest man give me thy word of honour to return in a month if thou canst decide to bring one of them back with thee. She will remain here, and thou wilt return home. If thou canst not do so, promise me to return hither alone, after bidding them farewell forever, for thou wilt belong to me. Do not fancy, continued the monster, grinting his teeth, that by merely agreeing to my proposition, thou wilt be saved. I warn thee, if thou thinkest so to escape me, I will speak for thee, destroy thee and thy race, although a hundred thousand men appear to defend thee. 
The good man, although quite convinced that he should not vainly put to the proof the devotion of his daughters, accepted nevertheless the monster's proposition. He promised to return to him at the time named and give himself up to his sad fate, without rendering it necessary for the beast to seek for him. After this assurance, he thought himself at liberty to retire and take leave of the beast, whose presence was most distressing to him. The respite was but brief, yet he feared he might revoke it. He expressed his anxiety to depart, but the beast told him he should not do so till the following day. Thou wilt find, said he, a horse ready at break of day. He will carry thee home quickly. Adieu, go to supper and await my orders. The poor man, more dead than alive, returned to the saloon in which he had feasted so heartily. Before a large fire, his supper already laid, invited him to sit and enjoy it. The delicacy and richness of the dishes had no longer, however, any temptation for him. Overwhelmed by his grief, he would not have seated himself at the table, but he feared that the beast was concealed somewhere and observing him, and that he would excite his anger by any slight of his bounty. To avoid further disaster, he made a momentary truce with his grief, and as well as his afflicted heart would permit, he tasted in turn the various dishes. At the end of the repast, a great noise was heard in the adjoining apartment, and he did not doubt that it was his formidable host, as he could not manage to avoid his presence. He tried to recover from the alarm which this sudden noise had caused him. At the same moment, the beast who appeared asked him abruptly if he had made a good supper. The good man replied in a modest and timid tone that he had, thanks to his attention, eaten heartily. Promise me, replied the monster, to remember your word to me and to keep it as a man of honour in bringing me one of your daughters. The old man, who was not much entertained with this conversation, swore to him that he would fulfil what he had promised, and return in a month alone or with one of his daughters, if he should find one who loved him sufficiently to follow him on the conditions he must propose to her. I warn thee again, said the beast, to take care not to deceive her as to the sacrifice which thou must exact from her, or the danger she will incur. Paint to her my face such as it is. Let her know what she is about to do. Above all, let her be firm in her resolution. There will be no time for reflection when thou shalt have brought her hither. There must be no drawing back. Thou wilt be equally lost without obtaining for her the liberty to return. The merchant, who was overcome at this discourse, reiterated his promise to confirm to all that was prescribed to him. The monster, satisfied with his answer, ordered him to retire to rest, and not to rise till he should see the sun and hear a golden bell. Thou wilt breakfast before setting out, said he again and thou mayest take a rose with thee for beauty. The horse which shall bear thee will be ready in the courtyard, 
I reckon on seeing thee again in a month, if thou art an honest man. If thou failest in thy word, I shall pay thee a visit. The good man, for fear of prolonging a conversation already too painful to him, made a profound reverence to the beast, who told him again not to be anxious respecting the road by which he should return, as at the time appointed the same horse which he would mount the next morning would be found at his gate, and would suffice for his daughter and himself. However little disposition the old man felt for sleep, he dared not disobey the orders he had received. Obliged to lie down, he did not rise till the sun began to illumine the chamber. His breakfast was soon dispatched, and he then descended into the garden to gather the rose, which the beast had ordered him to take to beauty. How many tears this flower caused him to shed! But the fear of drawing on himself new disasters made him constrain his feelings, and he went without further delay in search of the horse which he had been promised him. He found on the saddle a light but warm cloak. As soon as the horse felt him on his back, he set off with incredible speed. The merchant, who in a moment lost sight of this fatal palace, experienced as great a sensation of joy as he had on the previous evening, felt in perceiving it, with this difference that the delight of leaving it was embittered by the cruel necessity of returning to it. To what have I pledged myself? said he, whilst his courser carried him with a velocity and lightness which is only known in fairyland. Would it not be better that I should become at once the victim of this monster who thirsts for the blood of my family? By a promise I have made, as unnatural as it is indiscreet, I have prolonged my life. Is it possible that I could think of extending my days at the expense of those of my daughters? Can I have the barbarity to lead one to him, to see him, no doubt, devour her before my eyes? But all at once, interrupting himself, he cried, Miserable wretch that I am! What have I to fear, if I could find it in my heart, to silence the voice of nature? Would it depend on me to commit this cowardly act? She must know her fate and consent to it. I see no chance that she will be inclined to sacrifice herself for an inhuman father, and I ought not to make such a proposition to her. It is unjust, but even the affection which they all entertain for me should induce one to devote herself would not a single glance at the beast destroy her constancy? And I could not complain. Ah, too imperious beast, exclaimed he. Thou hast done this expressly by putting an impossible condition to the means thou offerest me to escape thy fury and obtain the pardon of a trifling fault. Thou hast added insult to injury. But, continued he, I cannot bear to think of it. I hesitate no longer, and I would rather expose myself without turning away from thy rage, than attempt a useless mode of escape which my parental love trembles to employ. Let me retrace, said he, 
the road to this frightful palace, and without deigning to purchase so dearly the remnant of a life which can never be but miserable, without waiting for the month which accorded me to expire, return and terminate this day my miserable existence. At these words he endeavoured to retrace his steps, but he found it impossible to return the bridle of his horse, allowing himself therefore against his will to be carried forward. He resolved at least to propose nothing to his daughters. Already he saw his house in the distance, and strengthening himself more and more in his resolution. I will not speak to them, he said of the danger which threatens me. I shall have the pleasure of embracing them once more. I shall give them my last advice. I will beg them to live on good terms with their brothers, whom I shall also implore not to abandon them. In the midst of this reverie, he reached his door. His own horse, which had found its way home the previous evening, had alarmed his family. His sons dispersed in the forest, had thought him in every direction, and his daughters, in their impatience to hear some tidings of him, were at the door in order to obtain the earliest intelligence. As he was mounted on a magnificent steed, and wrapped in a rich cloak, they could not recognize him, but took him at first for a messenger sent by him, and the rose which they perceived attached to the pommel of the saddle made them perfectly easy on his account. When this afflicted father, however, approached nearer, they recognized him, and thought only of evincing their satisfaction at seeing him return in good health. But the sadness depicted in his face, and his eyes filled with tears, which he vainly endeavored to restrain, changed their joy into anxiety. All hastened to inquire the cause of his trouble. He made no reply but by saying to Beauty, as he presented her with the rose, There is what thou hast demanded of me, but thou wilt pay dearly for it, as well as the others. I was certain, exclaimed the eldest, and I was saying this very moment that she would be the only one whose commission you would execute at this time of the year. A rose must have cost more than you would have had to pay for us all five together. And, judging from appearances, the rose will be faded before the day is ended. Never mind, however, you were determined to gratify the fortunate beauty at any price. It is true, replied the father mournfully, that this rose has cost me dear, and more dear than all the ornaments, which you wish for would have done. It is not in money, however, and would to heaven that I might have purchased it with all I am yet worth in the world. These words excited the curiosity of his children and dispelled the resolution which he had taken not to reveal his adventure. He informed them of the ill success of his journey the trouble which had undergone in running after a chimerical fortune, and all that had taken place in the palace of the monster. After this explanation, despair took the place of hope and of joy. The daughters, seeing all their projects annihilated by this thunderbolt, uttered fearful cries. The brothers, more courageous, said resolutely that they would not suffer their father to return to this frightful castle 
that they were bold enough to deliver the earth from this horrible beast, even supposing he should have the temerity to come in search of him. The good man, although moved at their affliction, forbade them to commit violence, telling them that as he had given his word, he would kill himself rather than fail to keep it. Notwithstanding this, they thought for expedience to save his life. The young men, full of courage and filial affection, proposed that one of them should go and offer himself as a victim to the wrath of the beast. But the monster had said positively and explicitly that he would have one of the daughters and not one of the sons. The brave brothers grieved that their good intention could not be acted upon, then did what they could to inspire their sisters with the same sentiments. But their jealousy of beauty was sufficient to raise an invincible obstacle to such heroic action. It is not just, said they, that we should perish in so frightful a manner for a fault of which we are not guilty. It would be to render us victims to beauty, to whom they would be very glad to sacrifice us. But duty does not require such a sacrifice. Here is the fruit of the moderation and perpetual preaching of this unhappy girl. Why did she not ask, like us, for a good stock of clothes and jewels? If we had not had them, it has at all events caused nothing for asking, and we have no cause to reproach ourselves for having exposed the life of our father by indiscreet demands. If, by an affected disinterestedness, she had not thought to distinguish herself, as she is in all things more favoured than we, he would have no doubt found enough money to content her, but she must needs, by her singular caprice, bring on us all this misfortune. It is she who has caused it, and they wish us to pay the penalty? We will not be her dupe. She has brought it on herself, and she must find the remedy. Beauty, whose grief had almost deprived her of her consciousness, suppressing her sobs and sighs, said to her sisters, I am the cause of this misfortune. It is I alone who must repair it. I confess it would be unjust to allow you to suffer for my fault. Alas, it was, notwithstanding an innocent wish, could I foresee the desire to have a rose when we were in the middle of summer would be punished so cruelly? The fault is committed, however, whether I am innocent or guilty. It is just that I should expiate it. It cannot be imputed to any one else. I will risk my life, pursued she in a firm tone. To release my father from his fatal engagement, I will go to find the beast, too happy in being able to die in order to preserve the life of him from whom I received mine, and to silence your murmurs. Do not fear that anything can turn me from my purpose. But I pray you during this month to do me the favor to spare me your reproaches. So much firmness in a girl of her age surprised them all much, and the brothers, who loved her tenderly, were moved at her resolution. They paid her infinite attention and felt the loss they were about to sustain but it was requisite to save the life of a father 
This spice motive closed their mouths, and well persuaded that it was a thing decided on, far from thinking of combating so generous a purpose, they contented themselves by shedding tears and giving their sister all the praise which her noble resolution merited, all the more from her being only sixteen years of age and having the right to regret a life which she was about to sacrifice in so cruel a manner. The father alone would not consent to the design of his youngest daughter, but the others reproached him insolently with the charge that beauty alone was cared for by him, in spite of the misfortune which she had caused, and that he was sorry that it was not one of the elders who should pay for her imprudence. This unjust language forced him to desist, Besides, Beauty assured him that if he would not accept the exchange, she would make it in spite of him, for she would go alone to seek the beast, and so perish without saving him. How do we know? said she, forcing herself to assume more tranquillity than she really felt. Perhaps the dreadful fate which appears to await me conceals another as happy as this seems terrible. Her sisters, hearing her speak thus, smiled maliciously at the wild idea. They were enchanted at the delusion in which they believed her to be indulging. But the old man, conquered by all her reasons, and remembering an ancient prediction by which he had learned that this daughter should save his life, and that she should be a source of happiness to all her family, ceased to oppose the will of beauty. Insensibly, they began to speak of their departure as a thing almost indifferent. It was she who gave the tone to the conversation, and in their presence she appeared to consider it as a happy event. It was only, however, to console her father and brothers, and not to alarm them more than necessary. Although discontented with the conduct of her sisters towards her, who appeared even impatient to see her depart, and thought the month passed too slowly. She had the generosity to divide all her little property and the jewels, which she had at her own disposal amongst them. They received this with pleasure, this new proof of her generosity, but without abating their hatred of her. An extreme joy took possession of their hearts when they heard the horse neigh which was sent to carry away a sister whose amiability their jealous natures would not allow them to perceive. The father and the sons alone were so afflicted that they could not contain themselves at this fatal moment. They proposed to strangle the horse. Beauty, however, preserving all her tranquillity, showed them again on this occasion the absurdity of such a design, and the impossibility of executing it, after having taken leave of her brothers, she embraced her hard-hearted sisters, taking such a tender farewell of them that she drew from them some tears, and they believed for the space of a few minutes that they were almost as much afflicted as their brothers. End of section 19